0: One great thing about Airbnb is it is it sort of disaggregates the the volume of. Um travel traffic right so traditionally you go to new york and where do you stay you stay in manhattan because that's where the hotels are right but uh one of the things that airbnb enables and i think this is a great thing about the product is it, it it breaks up that sort of monopoly of certain locations or districts on on travel and lodging and it brings economic effects uh you know outside of that core and that that really drew me to the company and then of course i read about their data team and uh yeah was lucky enough to find a place on it
1: Hacking—it's one of those terms that's either inspiring or incredibly maddening for other marketing professionals. It was born out of an approach made easier by technology that involved cross-functional teams building, testing, and iterating their acquisition initiatives at a rapid tempo. It was made famous by the usual suspects—you know, companies like Facebook, Dropbox, Pinterest, Airbnb, and now many others when it comes to growth hacking, Airbnb probably holds the distinction from one of the earliest and most talked about growth hacks. Around 2010, Airbnb implemented a now famous integration with Craigslist, wherein Airbnb users could syndicate their listing to Craigslist, which would then piggyback off of the website's massive user base, even though at the time there was no sanctioned way from Craigslist to do so. This was huge for Airbnb, an app still vying for sustainable user growth at the time. But make no mistake, high growth doesn't sustain off the back of one initiative like that. Airbnb has grown successful not only due to their great product, but also from its recurrent approach to experimentation, born out of experiments like the Craigslist integration. I got the chance to sit down with Lindsay Penningill, a data scientist at Airbnb, to learn more about this culture of experimentation at Airbnb and how other people can transpose these ideas at their own companies. This is Louder Than Words. Enjoy. Today is 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 a red letter day for me because last night I booked my first ever vacation to Airbnb. So whoa, awesome!
0: And That's great. Um,
1: yeah, I'm gonna be going to Martha's Vineyard for for a little bit in uh, in May, and I was like, you know, let me give this a shot. And it was actually a really great experience. So I wonder if I went through any of the 700 experiments that you guys are <laughs> are, are running this week, and right. if I contributed to to one of your hypotheses. But. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the first thing I wanted to ask you too is cause like just from some creeping on your LinkedIn, like you definitely have like a, a data background. Um, how did you find your way, I guess, to, to Airbnb? You've been on that team for the growth team there for what, two years? Yeah. Which, which from industry, um, you know, uh, sort of hearsay, like Airbnb is like one of the, in, in terms of like growth functions, like Airbnb is one of the, the people that gets talked about so much. So one of the organizations, um, really dating back to what, like the, 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 the Airbnb and like Craigslist integration. Mm. That was like, um, one of the early growth hacks, but yeah. How did you mm-hmm. find your way, I guess, into the growth team at, at Airbnb?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was a totally wild ride and and very circuitous, right? So, um, my background, I went to Bowdoin, a liberal arts school in the Northeast. Um, and you know, at Bowdoin, I really, I felt like I found my home, um, you know, I didn't identify as a social scientist then, but it was very clear that um, I was intrigued by the way that social scientists understood the world. And so um, kind of put that on hold for a little bit after Bowden went to Germany for for a bit on a Fulbright and ended up at Harvard and was working with a cognitive psychologist on uh, some of the early research onto uh, social media and how social media shapes Kids' um, identities and and senses of selves, and um, you know, was was really intrigued uh, at the possibility involved in in uh, you know more social research. It wasn't quite into data at that point. Um, went to Georgetown, got my PhD over many <laughs> too many years. Uh, and I was I got really into data when I was in grad school. Um in fact I, I would always just say I was just distracted by data, right? I'd ostensibly be working on a survey project, but I'd get really into the nuance of it and actually the technical aspects of data, right? Like, oh I'm doing this thing, but how can I do it better or how can I do it um how can I take a spin on the data and, and, and look at it in a different way? And you know, at some point, I just realized like wait a minute if if I'm being distracted by data and not actually finishing my dissertation in a reasonable amount of time, like maybe I should take that as a data point right? like <laughs> uh, and uh, you know life happens or life is just wild in that it's at least for me it's been really unpredictable um and I, was, I wanted to do a startup, and I, was, I had heard the name of some fellowship that could help me get funding. And so I looked for funding, and I ended up at this page that was uh, for a program called Insight Data Science. And it was one of those moments where I was like, someone's playing with me here. Like, this can't be for real, because what Insight Data Science is, is it's a program uh, to bridge the gap between academia and, and uh, industry. And in particular, it takes uh, PhD students or soon-to-be uh, PhDs, and uh, you know, it's this intense seven-week fellowship where you, you build a product, you build a data product, and then you demo it at companies in the Valley. So I applied once, and I didn't get in, and then I applied again, and I got in, and all of a sudden my life changed, and I was uh, – you know, writing in Python, which I hadn't done before. I was building a web app and, uh, you know, interviewing at all these companies. And Airbnb was one of them. And it was one that was particularly appealing, you know, mostly because of its mission at that point. You know, I had I'd used the product and I loved um, I'd seen some of their research at the time on um, how one great thing about Airbnb is it is it sort of disaggregates the the volume of, um, travel traffic, right? So traditionally you go to New York and where do you stay? You stay in Manhattan because that's where the hotels are, right? But, uh, one of the things that Airbnb enables, and I think this is a great thing about the product is it, it, it breaks up that sort of monopoly of certain locations or districts on, on travel and lodging, and it brings economic effects, uh, you know, outside of that core. And that, that really drew me to the company. And then of course I read about their data team and, uh, yeah, was lucky enough to find a place on it. So that's, that's the, I guess, longer short story of how I ended up uh, at Airbnb. And the growth team was just uh, the team that I chose. um, At the time, I mean, Airbnb is still growing and and growing still pretty expeditiously, you know, pretty, pretty uh, rapidly. And so it was really appealing to me to uh, have a seat at the table and really uh, understand that growth and more so influence it.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned in the uh, in the Medium article that you had written, and I'm probably going to re- reference this a bunch during this. Uh, yeah, the article is called Four Principles for Making Experimentation Count." Um, yeah just search that on medium for all the listeners and it's it 's part of like airbnb 's publication on medium and it 's an, an outstanding article, especially if you 're if you 're trying to establish sort of like a culture of experimentation at your company this is like this is this is a really great framework obviously from an organization that 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 seems to have it down pretty well so and you mentioned in the article that when you had first got there, they were running like something like a hundred experiments a week. Yeah. Um, and, and now two years later, you're up around 700 a week, which, which is just hard for, for, for me to wrap my head around. So, and Mm. like, uh, I know how hard it is to create a culture throughout the organization around experimentation, right? Because, Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, building things uh, on the engineering side that might only, work for two weeks and then they are never used again that's a hard sell right to 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 some engineers or if you're a finance team or a support team trying to um keep track of all these different uh experiences that are being executed on and which users are exposed to which and like that that could be a headache so it's 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 really hard to to cultivate Mm. that like culture of experimentation especially at that level so um, you talk about this in the article, like uh, shaping a, a robust culture around experimentation across all functions.
0: Mm. So
1: that's really hard work. How did, like from what you've seen in your time there, how does your team go about doing that?
0: Yeah, this, this is a a good question. Um, I appreciate that you picked up on it. I mean, it's, it's always a work in progress, right? So when I started over two years ago, uh, we had really just scaled out our experimentation framework, right, which allows experimentation to be run at scale. And, you know, of course, there, were ado- it, it, there was an adoption curve even at that, right? It wasn't just like, hey, we have this great tool, use it. It was like, we're building this tool, trust us, um, you know, as a framework for your experiments. And there were definitely some road, you know, hurdles that we confronted in terms of, um, you know things don't always work. You uncover bugs, just like any product, right? An experimentation framework is an internal product, but there are bugs in the product, and people would say, like, ah, you know, you're telling me to do these things. I'm not going to do them because what's coming out the other end is crap, right? And so, uh, a lot of the early work was on, okay, how do we how do we get people to, to use this? How do we get people to trust it just like any other product, right? And so we paid a lot of attention to the pain points that people had. Was it in setting up an experiment? Was it in developing metrics by which they could measure their experiment? Uh, you know, we have a very devoted small team that that builds this framework, and they did a great job at really listening to our internal users to get a sense of, you know, why they're using the product for the power users, why they're not using it, um, But, you know, in addition to that, I think one of the biggest and smartest things that we did or that we have going for us is that across the company, we really try to create an environment that is collaborative, that's open, that's really conducive to questions. um, Because you can't unleash something as powerful as an experimentation framework, which, you know, the engineering behind it is quite complicated, but even um, the, you know, the understanding of what happens within the framework and is produced to you in terms of like a UI. So basically we have this UI where your experiments are presented in terms of metrics and things like you can't hand that over to people and expect they'll just know what to do with it. Um, And that's something that we realized very early on. Uh, You know, we hire very smart people, but, you know, taking an advanced course in statistics is not a part of our interview process, right? For, for business partners, for PMs. And so we really have tried to double down on creating the right environment so that, you know, people, if they don't know how to use the tool, they know how to ask how to use it. Um, you know, there's been a lot of effort put in to documentation around it, right? Here's a tool, here's how you use it, right? Not just for engineers, but data scientists who are supporting experiments or product managers, right? So they know how to support their engineers um, when they're setting up experiments. You know, we, we've done a lot of things like, uh, more recently, we started uh, or, or basically a rotation system whereby you have to data scientists partnering with engineers for a week on a Slack channel, and they're just there to answer questions. And these questions could be, I want to run an experiment, and I'm not quite sure how can you walk me through it to, I set up this experiment, and it looks really wacky. Uh, what are the things that that could go wrong? And, um, you know, that takes a lot of effort to be servicing users in that way. It's like CX for experimentation, right, or customer customer support for experimentation. But Um it's really, really helped us in both ramping up people on the tools uh to do to run experiments, but then also really supporting them as uh you know as they use those tools. Um so we've we've gotten to a place now where it's really exciting in that it's it's basically like heretical to not to launch something without testing, um, which is amazing. We didn't imagine that years ago. And also you know, it's really hard in this environment to get away with with BS. Um, and that's basically due to the way that we, we educate around the tool. You know, you can't just say, hey, I ran this experiment and I moved this metric. Like, you're going to get really hard questions here about whether or not you really, <laughs> you know, you might have moved a metric, but is there any real impact? Um, and I think all of that, again, comes back to us really creating an environment where we're providing people with lots of education and support around experimentation. We're not just saying do this, but we're saying, you know, we want you to do this and we're going to help you to do this um, and hopefully learn a lot in the process. So who
1: owns that? Like the, the experiment? Cause it sounds like, especially with the experiment reporting framework, like mm. this internal tool that you guys have enabled um, anybody really to, to, to run an experiment, right? So how does that, how, how does that, um, how does that work? Like who, who, who owns, I guess, the experimentation process? is that your that's obviously your team?
0: Well, you know, we have uh I guess there's two sides of it. There's there's one like actually the tool the tool is owned by, you know, the engineers who are supporting it, but um, you know, each of us any data scientist, any engineer who wants to run an experiment, any product manager has full access to the tool and um, you know, all of its capabilities and they have access to change that. So if you're running an experiment and you need a more functionality, you know, depending on the complexity of it. So for instance, a common thing is my team will run um, an experiment. I work on internationalization, you know, we'll run an experiment and midway through I'll realize, Hey, there could be something fascinating going on here for, um, you know, hosts who have multiple listings, like maybe what this feature, where this feature is really working is on that segment or that dimension of people. And, you know, mid-experiment, I can then create that dimension. Our our pipeline is very conducive. Um, you know, it's very open. It's democratic. Anyone can use it and anyone can break it. And it happens all the time. Um, but that's, you know, that's okay because that's how you learn. And so, um, yeah, I think by giving anyone who wants full access to it, again, we're enabling uh, its use. So it's pretty cool.
1: But then with that also obviously comes – a level of discipline, right. To be able to know like mm. what's worth testing. And again, this is, <laughs> this is a big part of your yeah. article too. Like yeah. being hypothesis driven rather than feature driven, just it's, it's really easy, right. To say, mm. like, Oh, I think this feature would, would really increase um, engagement in this area or it would increase adoption or w- w- whatever it is. So obviously at a, at an organization like Airbnb, you have, mm. you know, that you guys have the engineering resources to, to realize just about any idea somebody has. <laughs> um, so how, but but just because there is an idea or there is a, a feature, um yeah. it doesn't mean it should be built, right? So like how how do you guys navigate that?
0: Yeah, great question. And it's it's definitely a hard one. Um so you know, I, I started off talking about how my backgrounds as a social scientist, um and in the social sciences at least, experimentation is really recent. Um you know, it, it was not until maybe the past 10 years that you got social scientists who were who are starting to run experiments. And a lot of this, of course, is due to the non-trivial issue of, you know, the ethics around experimentation in in a lot of the work that social scientists do. But, um, you know, so it's really welcome. But there, it's, it's been a long time coming. And, you know, before that, so just to, to, get, to, to give a little bit of context, um, You know, social scientists were just doing they're like running quasi experiments at best, um, but mostly using observational data. And I think what that means is that there's a lot of focus in the social sciences on uh, definitions, on concepts, on hypotheses. Right. Those are those are really central. A lot of the education around becoming a social scientist is is really in that. Um, So even though, you know, I'm a data scientist, that's what I call myself professionally. I'm really like a social scientist um, at heart. And my that that sort of statement or belief on my part about hypothesis really comes from that background. And I, you know, I want to flesh it out a little bit for product people. In that, you know, as as you mentioned, like we live. Those of us in Silicon Valley are familiar with Silicon Valley. In particular, in particular, like engineers are really valued out here, right? You know, engineers can <laughs> can hop around and you know mostly do the work that they want because we we really value makers. Um, but I think part of, this is part of what you touched on, like we can get uh, distracted by by what people can make um, as opposed to what should be built. And, you know, it's a little cynical, but like being successful out here can sometimes be more about luck than anything else. But, you know, at Airbnb, I, I mean, I, I'm i here, one of the reasons I'm here is I don't want to work somewhere that builds for luck, right? You need to build on a very solid foundation. Um, and I think part of that success Metric or whatever needs to be, like, is this impactful? Is this feature going to impact something? And that something can change, right? Depending on the team you're on, it could change. Even you're maybe you're on the same general team, but the area of focus um, varies. Um, but I think that hypotheses uh, can really be helpful there because they they force you to ask like, is like x is related to y? and by changing X, you know, we can decrease Y. Um, so, so yeah, I think that mindset, it's hard to get into that mindset, but by just creating an environment where people are asking questions rather than immediately going to the answer, because in many ways, like a feature or product is an answer, but the challenge is, are we asking the right question about that answer? And, you know, for me, it's very sad when you have the environment where people are making things, and then you you can't actually ever measure them, you know, then they feel like they've wasted their time. And um, I don't know, I never want to be in that environment when people feel like they've wasted their time. And so I don't know, process can be bad. But we've tried to create a lot of process around making that easier, making it so that we're all in this together, right? Like, we want to build good product, we want to build informed product. And by by providing a little bit of structure around, um, building the product with big part of which is hypothesis driven development, uh, should help there.
1: As an example, can you, can you quickly tell the story about the new translation service that your team, you know, kind of hypothesized on, ran an experiment on, on, uh, the, the web and native apps for Airbnb and how that worked out?
0: Oh yeah, that was fascinating. So, uh, yeah. And this is part of, you know, as you mentioned, it's, you work at a big company and a fast moving company. And like you said, people can, people can build things very quickly. Um, it also means that people can build things that you don't know about, <laughs> right. And, or, or you just overlook, uh, because you're so familiar that you don't notice the things that you should be paying attention to. And so one thing that we did was, uh, we yeah, we were uh, basically changing the backend service that we were using to power our translations and, um, we're running this test on both web and native, which are, uh, you know, distinct platforms at, for most companies and most products. Um, and yeah, we were seeing this, uh, really interesting conversion and we were really surprised by it. <laughs> um, and again, I think this, I, I keep harping on this, but like I work Airbnb is a place where when people are surprised by things they we talk about them, right? It's not like, "I don't know what's going on. Let's just ignore that." Instead, it's like, "Hey, did you guys notice this effect that we saw? Like, is this real because it looks really good?" You know, and when when we had that conversation, we were like, "Oh, wait a minute. Like, this re- looks really good because this product change that some other team made made it look really good, right? It it like so what the product the, the product difference was um on on the native apps, uh, there's uh, more structured data that's used. And as a result of that, you can translate structured data pretty easily and, and cost effectively. And so, you know, we had been translating uh, structured data, uh, which meant that more people were using a certain feature. And, uh, yeah, it was just a really interesting learning process that would not have been possible had we just said, like, oh, we're moving this metric and it looks great. Instead, it was like, we're moving this metric should we be concerned about anything, right? Um, and and I don't know. That's always fun to rain on each other's parades and be like, ah, oh, <laughs> there's always another question to be asked. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For sure, I like li- also like how your use of the word sanity metrics
0: oh, um, in, yeah.
1: in, in your article as well, and, and yeah. being able to detect lift and and things like that. Um, which which kind of takes me into your next point uh, in in the article, which was basically. Enabling the team to have the ability to detect uh, mm. a lift or mm. or a decrease or basically just any any effect right in your experiment if 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 there is one um, so it, and 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 you talk about different ways and, and suggestions that you guys go about that so um, I mean it it also sounds obvious too right it sounds obvious mm. it sounds easy. Um, but there's a multitude of factors I would imagine too, especially for an organization like Airbnb with so many Mm. different screens, so many different data points. There's a multitude of factors that can probably muddy the learning. So how does, how does your team approach level setting like pre and post Mm. experiment? So, you know, what the hell happened?
0: Yeah. Um, again, these are, these are great questions. (laughs) Um, I'm glad for your audience that they, they get these, right? (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully my answers are just as good. We will see. Um, yeah, level setting is hard. Uh, I've mentioned a couple times, uh, process, right? Like you never want, particularly as your organization grows, at least from my understanding, you never want too too much process, but there needs to be a certain amount of process. Um, that that just helps uh, structure things. So I hope that I'm answering this uh, correctly. But uh, you know, part of the process we have around this is like, if we're going to build something and launch it, uh, there's a couple of things that we always share with each other and we share with other teams. Um, and you know, we we do we literally just have this document where it's like a couple of bullet points, right? It's like describe to me the feature, declare your hypothesis, right? It's uh, you know what platform are you running this on? Just because there's lots of gotchas depending on the platform. Define your key metrics and your sanity metrics, which you know are those that keep us sane. Um, you know, think about the the estimated number of users that you need to make a decision. Um, you know, how much time do you need to achieve power? Um, th- those are like the things we, f- we try to force people to go through. Um, but those last, the latter two in particular touch on uh, what we, what you were um, bringing up in terms of detecting an effect. And I think that like, again, in, in like a maker driven culture and a feature driven culture, which a lot of Silicon Valley companies fall into, um, a lot of people ignore those those last two points, like how many, I need you need to be able to tell me how many people are going to see this feature. And as a result of that, like what what potential effect I can see. Um, but I really think it's it's like a good counter to, again, the bells and the whistles. Like when you have really great engineers, it's really easy to get distracted by some idea without it being grounded, necessarily being grounded in, in you know, research or hypothesis. And so. Um, so, yeah, those latter two points, I think, are super important an important like bar for pms uh to hold their engineers to uh because again everyone loses if you've invested you know weeks or months of time into building something that either isn't going to give you enough lift or you know not enough people are going to see i mean it's at the end of the day you're, it's it's simple right like the math around it is pretty simple but it's a question i think we we often overlook like to to our peril so
1: how do you guys like prioritize because surely there's way more than one experiment uh or idea in a certain area that's looking to influence Mm -hmm. one specific metric so like what kind of like prioritization scale or 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 basically process do you guys run through to say like this is the one that we think could have the biggest impact
0: yeah i mean that that's not always. I, I think the process around that isn't always so consistent. Um, it it really varies. I mean, at the most simple, it's it's just like a two you know two axes, effort and impact, um, and you know thinking deeply about where the competing uh, ideas fall on that scale. You know. I mean, as as big as we are, we're still resource, constri- like, right, like, it's always in everyone's best interest to say that they're resource constrained to get more resources. And, you know, even though we're a big company, we're certainly we encounter that. And so, you know, sometimes it's, it's as simple as, like, you know, these two ideas are really compelling. And, you know, somebody's taking a vacation. So we're going to go with that idea. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it, it, it's true. Um You know, of course, they're always we're assuming here that the ideas are have equally, you know, they have as much merit um, and that they would take the same amount of time. Right. If you take two future ideas, one's going to take twice the amount of time, then you better convince me that we're going to get twice as much out of it. Right. Um, And I think really, you know, these questions are, are hard. Right. Like no one wants to be told, like, this is a great idea, but it's not. It's not that impactful. Um, but again, that's not a failure. That's like a you that's a data point. And the next time you think about a feature, you you take that into consideration. Right. And hopefully it, go, it goes into your to your process. So.
1: And it's an inter- it's interesting terrain because like once you get down to that point, like you've looked at the data, you've mm. hypothesized uh, potential solutions, mm. and probably four or five, ten of them, depending on how big your team is. At some point, it starts to creep into subjective territory, right? Totally. Because yeah. it's like, well, yeah, all of these are are smart, uh, yep. you know, hypotheses. They're all based in in some sort of reality, and then it's just a matter of who thinks. And again, I think defaulting to effort is is huge, right? Like, all right, right. great. Yours is going to take three weeks. This one's going to take uh, five hours or, right. or or less. So it's, I think, you know, just being able to ensure that level of of, of velocity is probably like uh, a, a great way to 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 prioritize, right? Because then you yeah. <laughs> kind of like minimize the subject, uh, just the subjectivity of it. Um,
0: um yeah. I want to I want to jump in because um, I think something also that's that's like creeping up a little bit. And it's certainly something that we confront is this notion that like, oh my God, maybe we chose wrong, right? Maybe maybe we made the incorrect choice and I should have chosen that thing that took three times as long. And And I always have to remind myself and my teammates, like these are experiments, like they're hypothesis driven, but it's a guess, right? Like we have a hypothesis, and we it's an informed hypothesis, but like this might not work out, and that's okay. And maybe we made the wrong choice. And you're always I, I try to bring this up in my my blog post, you know, like you're always gonna fail if if failure means something didn't work out the way that you intended, and that we also shouldn't get into a position where we're not doing things because we're afraid we're gonna fail, right? Like you're always going to fail. So the yeah, question d- is what don't what get you into do. growth. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So the question is like what do you do with that, you know? Sometimes it's because your hypothesis is wrong, and that's a huge learning, right? Like if we walk out of an experiment and we say like, "Whoa, we made this assumption about users that we weren't even declarative about before, but now we are and and now it's on the table, right? Like we're going to put it up there and now we own it and that That, I think, is one of the harder things, right? Like you get good engineers and good data scientists, and you know you can build an experimentation framework and you can iterate on it. fine, it'll be great. But like what's much harder is this attitude or this culture where it's like we're just testing things, right? like and and sometimes you're going to win, and that's great, but don't count on it, and that's totally okay.
1: Yeah, and I think and uh, packaging those failures, and you talk mm. about this in your article, I think is super important because especially for organizations that are maybe trying to foster this uh, culture of experimentation – it helps lend credibility to what you're doing. Um, nobody, especially at you know uh, an executive level or a leadership level, wants to hear that everything's going great. Like uh, we we ran these experiments, and um, and you're only reporting on the good ones, or you're mm. only running ones that you're going to see really minimal lifts in. I think packaging those failures and mm. the subsequent learnings lend credibility to the entire function, and I think actually increase buy-in across mm-hmm. your organization because you're learning things yeah so how do, like i mean they're like you're alluding to there's far more failures uh than there are successes so how do you guys package those analyses or do or do you um mm-hmm. so you know a wider audience internally can can learn from them how do you guys approach that
0: yeah Wow. um Again, great question. Uh, First, a a lot of this, at least at Airbnb, from my perspective, comes from the sort of cultures that we create, right? And something that I, um, you know, I'm really passionate about, really a fierce advocate of is like, don't be embarrassed, (laughs) right? Like, again, I, I talked about process earlier, like process, too much process can be bad. But I do think that you need to create process around humility. Like, I think, unfortunately, we, we live in a world where humility isn't always fostered. Um, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but, you know, it's, it is really important to me to work on teams and create teams where, um, you know, you're humble about your successes and you're very reflective about your non-successes uh, or, or failures and you're, you're not embarrassed by them. You create You turn them into learning experiences, right? You're only, you only fail if you're not doing that. And I think this applies to life in general. And so what does that mean in terms of like actual tactical things? So, um, on the growth team that I'm on, we have a couple of things, Uh, we have, uh, experiment review and this is a bi-weekly thing where we write, you know, all of our product teams and we say, you know, experiment review is coming up, who has experiments they want to share. And We've been doing this for almost the full time that I've been here. At the beginning, those were all about wins. It was like, hey, my team did this, and, you know, look at this. We're really good, um, and that's great. You know, you certainly want to know the things that people did and that work so that you can, you know, maybe move them to your – or apply them to your product area. But about a year or so in, we were like, wait a minute. Like, this is great, but are we are we learning anything from this? Um, are we learning anything by creating an environment where people are encouraged to share just their successes? And we sort of we did a revamp of it and, and really a rebranding of it. And we said, you know, we're going to we're going to keep doing this, but we're going to change it up a little bit. Uh, what we're particularly looking for is lessons like tell us what you did wrong, because, you know, how do you become a great engineer? You scale your work or, you you know, you make you make it so that other engineers are doing are working more efficiently. Same thing with knowledge, right? Like I want to work at a place where knowledge is scaled and shared and it's not siloed. And so, you know, these experiment reviews became a place and and you know, with that said, it's something that you still have to actively foster. Like if you just say come to experiment review and tell us a story, everyone will tell you their successes. And so we've really had to actively say like we need someone to talk about a failure here. And and it's amazing um, because you know when people talk about failures that everyone's taking notes, right? Because they're like, oh, whoa, I'm glad it happened to you and not me, <laughs> because you know I can learn from your mistake. So experiment review has been really good. Another side of that is uh, postmortems, which you know I come from academia, we don't talk about our failures at all, um, and I was really struck by you come to an engineering culture, and when something goes wrong at Airbnb, it's very public. It's it's public in that again, you take the opportunity to share with other people what happened, how it happened, how you can avoid it uh, in the future, how other people can avoid it. So those things have been very powerful. Within the data science team in particular, we started this thing called the Failure Awards, where um, every quarter or so, we give awards to uh, people who have uh, messed up, and, you know, it usually becomes something. It's it's exactly that. Like, you laugh about it, right? Sometimes you you do things and they're mortifying. <laughs> um, but then you get a little distance from it and you share it with other people. And again, what they're really listening to is like, what did you do? Right? Like, and they're <laughs> listening to it so they can't do it. Um, and And people, you know, of course, we have to avoid like, perverse incentives, right? Like, I don't want someone to do something really bad just so they can get an award. But, you know, it it, and again, it's like, how do you create this culture? This is one way that we create that culture is just by reminding people that, hey, this is funny. And we're gonna, we're gonna laugh. And we're also going to praise this person for being brave enough to, you know, teach us all. Um, I think that's, that's really important, you know, always going back to uh, you know, experimentation or not experimentation, anything that, that, you know, you do, it's like, what did I learn from this? Um, what are the assumptions that I can uncover in, in the process? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's failure is, it's, it's just a reality. And I think there's so many people who, uh, uh, you know, are, you know, whether they're VCs or, or, um. Whoever you know, just figure heads that say like, "We don't celebrate failure." You know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. But okay, great. But when you don't do that, what happens is people hide them, and then nobody learns right. from them. And uh, right. yeah, I think I think it, it seems like, especially in tech, um, and as you said, in, in engineering culture, there's much. More openness about like, Mm. hey, this didn't work. And I want you guys to all understand why, which I think is, which I think is great. Um, yeah. So, so thanks for, for sharing these. And, and you keep saying great questions, but really I'm just setting you up because this is all based on like your article. So, so really like (laughs) great article. This is just really easy to, to kind of put this in question form. Um, thank you. But there, there is, there, there is a question in, in, in your comments, um, from the article that I kind of want to, I kind of want to end with because I think it's, um, it's, it's a common one. Mm. And I think it's, it's a very actionable one for, for listeners to take with them is, is, uh, very basic, like coming up with experiments. Um, this, this, uh, particular reader said, can you expand on how you come up with your experiments and the role that user research plays? So you don't have to answer that question specifically, but the mm. idea for, for any listener now that, that, that either has done a few, whether they're just A B tests or they want to get into more, um, experimentation, um, and, and, and kind of start not not full-on creating the culture, because that's, hmm. that's a continuous process, but, you know, what are, what are some things people can do to start coming up with ideas? Like, where, where do they look? Like, where, where can they find that inspiration to make smart decisions on things to test?
0: Hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, I think it's really hard, right? Like, coming from a data scientist, obviously, I, f- I feel like the first thing, maybe this is predictable, but the first thing that comes to mind is just look at your data, Right. Like if you're running experiments without data, ah, that like makes me a little makes me uncomfortable Uh, because, again, right, like it needs to be hypothesis driven. Where do you get these hypotheses? As a data scientist, I'm looking to the data and I'm I'm always approaching data skeptically. Um, And this is something I have I've colleagues who are great and, and they're very skeptical. And that means that whenever I come to them, I say, you know, this is check this out you know this is what's happening they'll be like well, um you know and they'll, they'll they'll throw some twist onto again an assumption that i had and so i think starting with data is really important but also be in conversation with and about your data because you know again you were saying in silicon valley we talk about things right maybe we talk in, in an engineering cultures you talk about uh, failure so that we can scale our learnings. Um, you know, we should, we should also be evangelizing our thoughts and and the degree to which you do this varies. But, you know, I think if anything, I came from academia where we don't do enough of that, right? Like part of the way you succeed through or, or you advance an academic career is, um, sitting alone and thinking a lot uh and if then that works for some people i wasn't that great at it um and i think one of the the things that's that I, I really value here is that i get to have really great conversations and so many of the conversations i have about our product about our data our hypothesis generating so so yeah i'd say that's super important understand your data or try to understand your data, talk to other people about your data. And again, like data can take different forms. You sort of alluded to this as well, right? Like I tend to think about, you know, user behavior. Um, but depending on the product that you're working on, depending on the stage of your growth, depending on the company that you work at, you know, user research is in, is an amazing way to um, derive hypotheses. And I know there's a great researcher on our team whom I work really closely with, and um, I wouldn't say either one of us has a monopoly on hypotheses. You know, we're we're always bouncing ideas off of each other, and, um, you know, they're given equal weight. So I don't know. It seems simple, but, like, talk about your product. <laughs> like, think about your product. Talk about it. Um And I think the sort of creative juices like start to flow.